Almighty Father, we thank you for the gift that it is to meet as God's holy people, as those given grace and peace from the King of the universe. Today, please help us understand the joy that it is to truly know you, the Christ. I pray that you would use me as your instrument and that I wouldn't use you as mere inspiration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome all this beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Joshua Lovely, as you all know, or most of you know. And today I'll be sharing with you the joy of knowing Christ, as um, Paul talks about it in Philippians. We'll be talking about three, three things in particular. Firstly, what it is, what the joy of knowing Christ is. Secondly, why we need it. And thirdly, how to get it. It's easy, right? Before we look at these things, um, to show you how this message is relevant to you all, I'd like to look at some um, similarities between ancient Philippi and Timaru as it is today. So this is um, the central marketplace in Philippi as it stands today. Um, now, I know it might not look at it at the start, but actually they're remarkably similar. They've got a big uh, highway of some sorts. Looks like a pack and save would be down here or... A or a warehouse or something. I don't know. Um, this, is, this is not their library. This is our library. Uh, we've got concrete. You can see a grassy patch there in a, in a doorway too. They had a library. Emphasis on the had. Um, there's not really much left of it. But they also have the concrete and grass. And Well, I mean, it's not hard to see the similarities between their theatre and our sound show now, is it? But... Um, Jokes aside, the Philippians are actually pretty similar to us, that cool Timaru home. They were comparatively wealthy, as we are. They had an aged population, as we do. And pagan ideology was the norm. I won't describe myself in this way, I've given three adjectives, but that's the truth about Timaru. I believe that God cares about the people here, and that this ancient letter of Paul's was designed to meet our needs, as it did to that minority group in Philippi. Words have a transcendent power to them. There's no doubt about that. And it's undisputed that God's words, recorded here, have the capacity to change your life and mine, radically so, as they have for millennia. So, firstly, the joy of knowing Christ, what it is. I define it as a deep contentment in all circumstances because of Christ. It's a consistent joy that sees God's work in all things, seeing the best in everything. It's an attitude of persistent optimism during suffering because of a complete trust in our loving and all-powerful God. Now, these are just a lot of words, a lot of abstract ideas. So what I thought we could do, I'm an English major, thought we could look through Paul's letter and see how he, the author, uses this, um, this attitude in his writing. Let's trace the theme through some examples in the text. Firstly, this is just chapter 1, beginning after the introduction and all. He said, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now Paul is writing this from prison. Even here, he's seeing the bright side. Sees how God is working this to advance the gospel. 
He doesn't wallow in all the reputation he's lost, you know. Oh, as a result, everybody in the whole palace knows that I'm in prison. No, he's just, he's stoked to see how this is, um, how God is using this for Christ's sake. And he's stoked that people know that. And how it's making other people bold. He's just listing all these good things. Let's continue on. Um, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and goodwill, but others out of, out of goodwill. Sorry, out of envy and rivalry. But. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm chains. But what does any of that matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I'll rejoice. This resilient optimism continues all the way down the page, and it's neatly summed up in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul, in his mind, he can't lose. Either his suffering will be producing good things, or his death will mean union with the one he loves. He'd be a really hard guy to trash talk. This joy is the antidote to adversity. Not meaning that you won't go, you'll avoid suffering or its effects, but you won't be hindered by it. Because of Christ, there's nothing that means we can ever truly lose. Paul sees the best in everything because he completely trusts his loving and all-powerful God. For many people, suffering's existence is the very reason they don't believe in this God. One loving and all-powerful. Often it's one of two camps. The first one is people who say, now if God is real and he is all-powerful, he certainly isn't loving. I mean, how could you believe in a God like that? Look around you. The tortures and genocides of the world prove this. If God is real and he is all-powerful, he certainly isn't loving. He would have stopped those things happening and he would stop the suffering that's happening to me too. On the other side, there's people who say, now if God is real and he is loving, then he certainly can't be all-powerful. He wants to stop the suffering in the world, but he just can't. So you can see why suffering seems to cancel out our loving and all-powerful God. Paul writes, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Paul doesn't seem to see suffering as such a bad thing. He puts the gift of faith right next to the gift of suffering. What planet is he on? This is where each of us need to ask ourselves a very important question. If I can't think of a reason of why suffering exists, does that mean that there can't be one? Because our God came down to suffer for us, we know he loves us. And because he was raised from the dead, we know he's all-powerful. Paul's deep joy from knowing Christ and his work allows him to be content in any and every situation, able to do all things through him who gives him strength. Remember, he can't lose, and neither can you and I. Even if all things in our life fall apart, we lose a child, we lose a house, a lung or a leg, even if you die losing everything, you gain everything because of Christ. I'm so passionate about this idea that I'm even wearing Calvin Klein's Eternity Cologne today. 
Knowing this and knowing the one who loves you that much means you can be content in any and every circumstance. And more than that, you can dance in the rain. You can realize your freedom. So the joy of knowing Christ is knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are practically safe in your lover's arms and that you can trust his plan for all things, even when they seem bleak. Okay, on to our next point. Why we need it. Why we need it. An astonishing fact I've learned while studying English is that good literature can't be nice. No one reads stories about people just having their best day ever. What captures our attention is something going wrong. Human beings are fascinated with the negative. Take the picture of Dorian Gray, for example. This is an excellent read. Very good. Um, It follows the life of a young and handsome man, not me, but named Dorian Gray. Um, And uh, he makes a wish um, that his portrait would grow old and grow ugly. I'm not, not not making any comments or anything. Um that his portrait would age while he stays forever young. Dorian then goes along his life indulging in a cruel and sinful lifestyle. His hidden portrait reflects the consequences of his immoral actions, reflecting his soul. The novel explores the destructive power of vanity and the consequences of unchecked desires. The climax of this tale is when his dear friend Basil confronts Dorian about the rumours of his actions. Dorian, the young handsome man, decides to show his friend the picture, the picture and what he really looks like. Um, and uh, it's now hideous. Let's read what happens. Dorian Gray glanced at the picture, and suddenly an uncontrollable feeling of hatred for Basil Hallward came over him, as though it had been suggested to him by the image on the canvas, whispering into his ear by those grinning lips. The mad passions of a hunted animal stirred within him, And he loathed the man who was sitting at the table more than in his whole life he had ever loathed anything. He glanced wildly around. Something glimmered on the top of a painted chest that faced him. His eye fell on it. He knew what it was. The story goes on to describe Dorian brutally killing his friend. I'm going to spare you it. Um, he He was looking at a knife. It's shocking stuff, but it's the same principle that Paul was talking about in chapter 3. For as often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Their God is their stomach. What does this mean? If you aren't made free by Christ, and you don't know this dance in the rain joy, aren't you just a slave to whatever desires you have? To be rich? to eat this and that, to make someone pay? How is a slavery to your passions any different to Dorian Gray's or Adam and Eve's? They saw, desired, and took what they wanted. That's the basis of all sin, isn't it? Seeing, wanting, and taking what's not yours to take. We're warned countless times, this way leads to destruction. To us, to believers who know the joy it is to have Christ take our place. We're no longer slaves to this fear of not being satisfied. We don't need to see and take what's not ours because our urge's ultimate fulfilment is coming and is found in Christ. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. So the reason we need this joy is because otherwise we're a slave to just whatever we feel, to making our own joy here in this life. And we're actually told to as believers to have it. These are all the times, Justin Philippians from a skim read, that, um, that, he, that, that, that Paul tells us to, to have this joy. Well, let's read that last one. Whatever, whatever you have learned or received or heard uh, from me or seen in me and put it into practice, uh, sorry, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Put it into practice. Wow, it's almost like someone's designed this sermon. It goes really well onto our third point. Perhaps the most important point, how to get it, this joy of knowing Christ. What is it to know Christ? Well, he's the undisputed most well-known man in history. Jesus, that is, Christ. Nearly everyone knows who he is. Why doesn't everyone have this joy then? Why don't some of the people who know him personally not have this joy? A theme Paul weaves through his letter is that of intention. We must be intentional about our relationship with Christ. It's not a one and done sort of relationship. The sheer number of imperatives in there, commands, like conduct yourselves and work out your salvation and rejoice and think about and watch out and stand firm in this letter, it's clear Paul wants us to act. In 3.13, chapter 3 verse 13, he shares his mindset in light of his faith in Christ. It's really encouraging. He says, one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining on towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul is giving encouragement to the complacent. It takes effort to know Christ. It takes effort to grow in trust of our loving and all-powerful God. To those happy with the Sunday morning religion. But after commending us to work out our salvation, to press on, Paul shares an interesting truth. All of us then, who are mature, should take a view of these things. And if on some point you think differently, that too will God God will make clear to you. And he says elsewhere in chapter 2, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. While Paul wants us to be ever-growing and progressing in our faith, as he was, he also shares the humble truth once again. We aren't God. The universe isn't up to us. Our work, our knowledge, suffering and intention, nothing can save us. We are simply going to paradise because Christ said so and took our place on the cross. This dynamic of needing our intention and his intervention is essential to us. And essential to us. It reaches both the complacent ones of us and the legalistic ones of us. The comfortable Christian is on the left. They're Christians with no strings attached. Their faith is a Sunday morning religion. They skip over the confronting parts of scripture and their minds are set on earthly things, as Paul says. Living how they want with no intention of changing towards Christ. Paul's message is to get up, to shake off the cobwebs and move. Forget what is behind and strain on towards what is ahead. On the other hand, the legalistic Christian is an anxious Christian. Their life is a self-inflicted 
pressure cooker of to-dos and not good enoughs. They believe their salvation and their worth is up to them. They bend themselves up countless times to create self-worth out of every scenario. Paul's reminder is that God is in control, not you. It is he who shapes his, your intentions and actions. Speaking to both parties, it's amazing, eh? So how do we get this joy? How do we know Christ? Well, now we know it takes our intention and his intervention. But the answer to how to get this joy is in chapter 4, which um, Tina read out in NIV, um, but I'd love to read it out in the message translation, Eugene H. Peterson. Um, oh, there's the NIV out there, but I'll read it from here. Celebrate God all day, every day. I mean, revel in him. Make it as clear as you can to all that you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. Help them see that the master is about to arrive. He could show up at any minute. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the centre of your life. Well, to sum it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling and gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not to curse. Put into practice what you have learned from me, what you heard and saw and realised. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will weave you into his most excellent harmonies. I think that's so nice. We'll weave you into his most excellent harmonies. So rejoice about all the things you can. And what is more, this is a real revelation for me while I was going through the text, is what is more true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent and praiseworthy than Christ and what he did on the cross? I'd been limiting it to just um, like thinking about the things like, I'm so happy I've got shoes and a car. And, and food. And these are all good things to talk about, and I'm sure Paul wants you to talk, think about those things. But, like, Christians who were going into Colosseum to be executed didn't have any of those things. They had nothing. They're about to be torn apart and still, you know, singing hymns and rejoicing. Because the, the truest, most noblest, right, pure, lovely person is Christ, and he has done the work for us. And that can never be taken away. He passed the test we couldn't, and was tempted with sin, he shunned it. Not only that, but he took the suffering we deserved. Proving his love for us, and rising again, proving his power. You see, this letter is renowned for its being about joy. I use some software on my computer, um, and it uh, organises into a list the most common Greek, Greek words for this letter. Um, and it, it mentions joy or rejoice 14 times. Imagine if you got a letter from somebody and 14 times they keep coming back to the same thing to talk about it. So, yeah, okay, I get the picture. All right. Now imagine my surprise when the most common word, most common word used in all of Philippians after this multi-use like preposition is, um, is Christ. At 37 times, joy and rejoice put together is 14, and Christ is 37 times. 
you can really tell where Paul's focus was. Where is your focus, church? Where's my focus? You know, something I found incredibly helpful when I can't see the good around me is to simply write it out, actually. I have a notebook filled with endless lists of everything good I can ever think of. Everything I'm grateful for. You can find endless things if you try hard enough. A warm bed, food, water. You can be specific, for example. Like, I'm glad that my Bible has two bookmarking ribbons instead of one. It's really cool. And you can just go all the way. Like, this clicker, it's so nice that it's just got the one circle. I've had clickers before, and they've got, like, five buttons. And Why would you even need five buttons, you know? It's really good. And you can just keep going and going and going and going. Gratitude is an important practice. And there's the study that's found that the effects of one grateful thought lasts in the brain for three months. What sort of dynamic is that that God put into creation? I think that's amazing. But the reason Christians throughout the years have been able to rejoice when they don't have a warm bed and food is because they practice dwelling on the most wonderful truth of all, that our good God doesn't change. And he loves us. He's waiting for us. And day by day, He's making the portrait of our soul to look a little bit more like his sons. And one day, we'll look just like him. Paul's description of a robust, healthy Christian life is one of joyful growth and advance. Because of Christ, we can rejoice in all things, trusting that good will come out of suffering. Because of Christ, we are no longer slaves to our passions. And from our intention and God's intervention, we too can have a deep sense of contentment and elation in all circumstances. And it comes from the practice of rejoicing continually for the endless goods that God has done. Seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Let's pray. Let's do it. Lord God, there are so many things to be thankful for. Endless things, Lord. We thank you so much that you don't give us a list of to-dos. And we're, also, we're really thankful, Lord, that you're not just comfortable with us, with us just cruising and not being serious about things. Thank you so much that you're both loving and all-powerful. And that you offer this joy to us freely. Please help us this week, Lord, to grow in our knowledge of you, to put effort in. And to be grateful for all you've given us, Lord. We are so, so, so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, oh, thank you. Thanks. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, but you'd like to, please come speak to anybody. Anybody here. Most people here are Christians, and they would love to have you come along with us. Thanks, church. It's good. <laughs>